This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. However you find the takeout, digital TV on CBSN, radio stations around the country, including on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, or our early adopters on podcast platforms. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for hanging out with us on this Thanksgiving week. Happy Thanksgiving the day after. It's obviously Friday when you're hearing this. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I'm going to take a point of personal privilege. I want to thank the people who are most responsible other than me for this show. Arden Fari, my main producer, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Eric Susanen, and Jake Rosen. All of them make this show work. Not possible to do it without them. I am deeply and perpetually thankful for them for all of their stout volunteer work on behalf of this show. All right. Point of personal privilege now concluded. (laughs) On with the main event, which is Abigail Spanberger, who is a Democratic congresswoman representing the 7th District of Virginia. 7th is interesting because you have, as I read it now, Congresswoman Spanberger, seven Republicans who want to run against you next year. They all think this is a race that is winnable. Is it? No. Um, no. <laughs> no. So they are going to lose to you and you're going to win re-election, correct? That is my plan. Okay, good. Well, anything about the redrawing of lines in Virginia, because redistricting is necessary after reapportionment and the census, change your opinion about whether or not you will seek re-election? Uh, at, at this point, no. But, it, you know, <clears throat> we also have to make sure, you know, what the districts look like. Uh, we're anticipating that it'll be much of the same. So mm-hmm. I look forward to campaigning across whatever the ultimate 7th district looks like. I don't need to tell you that the atmosphere around this question of how Democrats will fare in the midterm election has turned noticeably dire, at least in the reporting of people like myself and others in the last month or two. Lots of public data, the governor's race here in Virginia, not to mention that, but the other statewide constitutional offices all went to Republicans. What is your feeling about what's being said and prognosticated about the environment for the midterm elections for Democrats? So I'm always happy to have people focus on what could be the, the sort of worst case outcome. I think it's perfectly appropriate that everybody be really nervous towards 2022. I think you should be really nervous towards any single race. 
Um, I think you should plan for it to be as hard of a race, you know, whether you're an incumbent here in Virginia or in California or Texas or anywhere else. Um, I think people should be planning for it to be the hardest race and you should run like you're five points behind, even if you don't think you are. Uh, so the fact that there's a lot of attention, there's a lot of people worrying, I think that's probably very good if it gets people motivated and, and focused and serious about about the election. You're in a district that is competitive, so you never have the luxury of thinking it's essentially won or in the bag. What would you tell those House Democrats from maybe a seat that's five or eight points? Assume the worst? Plan for the worst? I plan, always run like you are five points behind. Always run like you have one more person to listen to, one more person to talk to, one more voter to ask for their vote. Um, and if you are going, 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 um, you know, I, I think that's that's how that's how you connect with people. That's how you convey what our policies are. That's how you convey what it is you voted for. Um, and that's how you get people engaged in an election. The the more people who are voting, the healthier our democracy. So get everybody out to vote. Um, and yeah, I, it's going to be a tough one. And I'm glad that people see that because ideally they'll be working, you know, harder, harder, harder than they ever have before. I have uh, experience covering wave elections in the House. The first one I remember covering was 1994, when mm -hmm. Republicans won back control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. There have been many waves since then. Yep. One consistent truism in all waves, whichever party they affect, is that there are about 10 or 20 seats that people don't see coming and they're not planning for. If I hear you correctly, you're not. You're telling me no House Democrat is going to say, "Oh, this year's a walkover. No wave could come." I'm telling you, no House Democrat should say that. <laughs> oh, one or two might. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, they're not. If they're listening to me, they're not. <laughs> and unlike many people who are in Congress, who don't have the benefit of a recently held statewide election, you do. Yeah. And in the seventh district, you won by just under two percentage points in 2020. The newly elected Republican governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, carried your district by 11 points. What does that tell you? Um, it, it tells me <clears throat> that he did a lot of work to get people out to vote, um, that he did a lot of work to engage people across our 10 counties in the 7th District. Um, and it tells me that I need to do a lot of work. Uh, you know, Did it tell you anything about attitudes that voters had in 2020 that somehow shifted one year later in 2021? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that. In some ways, yes, but it, but not because we're comparing 2020 to 2021. The, the governor's, different elections, right. Yeah, the governor's race always has a, sometimes a different electorate, certainly a, a much lower turnout compared to a presidential race. Um, but, but some of the indicators and some of the things that I was looking at, I, I think were... Um, you know, messages, frankly, to a lot of Democrats. We saw that the governor-elect did a lot of really successful, engaging campaigning in our rural counties. Um, and I think that, you know, I personally represent seven wholly rural communities. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in those communities, not because I think that I'm going to win them by a landslide, because I, I don't. Um, but because but you need to try I need to try and and I want to try because the policies that I advocate for be they agricultural policies conservation policies or frankly anything across the board be it the bipartisan infrastructure and investment uh, uh, investment uh, in jobs act um, like making sure people understand how that bill is going to bring more money uh, to our state investing in roads and investing in um, water 
projects, which are incredibly important and kind of top issues in some of the rural counties that I uh, that I represent, ensuring that people know why I voted for those bills and how it's going to impact them, um, and frankly, showing an interest. You know, one of the things I hear frequently when I have um, been present in communities that maybe don't always get a lot of um, campaign outreach is, you know, you're here far more than any of your predecessors combined. And so I think one of the, you know, I, I can't, I can't, and I won't, because I, I don't think it's, it's, it's not how I want to do the job. I can't take any county for granted, but it's really amazing to have the opportunity to show up in a community that hasn't really seen a representative Democrat or Republican in quite some time and say, I'm here to talk about the policies that I'm advocating for. I'm here to tell you about the things I voted for. And most importantly, I'm here to ask, like, what is happening in your life? What are things that I need to know about um, in your job, in your personal life, in your business, or in your community? Before we go to segment two, I want to let people know where we are. We're in Richmond, Virginia, not surprisingly part of your district. Also, Strange Way Brewery, Strange Ways Brewery is our host here. You can see the fermentation tanks to the left. Big kegs behind us. I think you figured out what those were. Uh, we'll get around <laughs> to the uh, consumption part of this show momentarily. Um, before we go to break, uh, you have a quote that you gave to the New York Times that ran something like this. No one elected President Biden to be FDR. What did you mean by that? They elected him to stop the chaos and be normal, I think was the second part of that quote. Um, I, I meant that, you know, there are a lot of people who have been putting big, you know, major transformational ideas of we, you know, we wanted the president to lead us in this and this and this. And basically, you know, there's a whole array of policies and ideas that, you know, people are putting on Biden. And I think that for me, listening to voters, listening to constituents in my district, you know, the primary sort of principal reason across the board. Now, maybe somebody really liked this policy proposal or that policy proposal. I'm not saying that they weren't attracted to some of his policies, but the principal uniting factor between the Democrats who voted for him, the independents who voted for him, the Republicans who voted for him is, oh my goodness, like a pandemic, years of upheaval under the last administration. So much is happening. There's so much unease. We we just need to stabilize, right? And here's a man who has decades worth of working across the aisle getting things done, accomplishing things. And we just need to not have to watch the news for a day. Um, and that bit of normalcy, that stopping of the chaos, I, I think is, you know, when it comes down to it, a major motivator for so many people who voted for him. That is the voice of Abigail Spanberger, Congresswoman from the 7th District of Virginia, Democrat. She's our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout from Richmond's famous Strange Ways Brewery coming to you in just a moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I am Major Garrett. You already knew that. Abigail Spanberger is our special guest. We are at Strange Ways Brewery in Richmond, Virginia, part of her district, 7th District of Virginia. So we were talking right before the break about President Biden was not elected to be Franklin Delano Roosevelt and that creating some sense of calm, predictability, was really the thrust behind, from your vantage point, why he was elected. How is he doing on that? Um, and was the de- and related to that was the delay in getting the infrastructure bill to his desk. It was held. I don't need to tell you, in limbo legislatively for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. Looking back on that, and maybe you don't even need to look back on it. Maybe you were <laughs> saying, I think you were saying it quite loudly very, at the time. Very Do clear. this now. Don't put it in limbo because it's depriving the president of that very thing you were talking about, working across the aisle and managing tough bipartisan solutions in the nation's capital. And it's depriving the people of a bill that is, in fact, like really transformative and and a measure of success and exactly what the president promised. uh, You know, I mean, this bill, when we think about the fact that throughout the spring months, you know, the president was meeting all the time with members of the Senate. Some of the members of the Senate were working with some of the members of the House. It was this back and forth process um, to create an incredibly good infrastructure bill, a jobs bill. And it was negotiated. It was voted on in the Senate. It had the vote of 19 Republican senators, including Leader McConnell. You know, and they send it over to the House. That whole specter of the filibuster blocking everything was lifted. And for a moment, it was like, ah, like we have this bill. And then the House said, no, we're going to hold it. And for for me, I mean, I was very, uh, very open in my opinion that we were holding a good bill hostage on the promise of another bill and to perhaps use it as leverage, which I think is a pretty uh, ridiculous assertion. And I've long maintained that because, you know, a good bill that delivers jobs and major investments in our, you know, in Virginia, the 2,000 miles of roads that are in poor condition or the 577 bridges that are in dire need of repair, the idea that that bill is going to somehow just get held up because we're talking about other issues, to me, was nonsensical um, and, 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 well... And didn't work. Water under that failing bridge at this point, but didn't work. I mean, it didn't for what end. Um, and, and so I do think it wasn't it was a mistake. I, and, and did your colleagues in the House need the shock effect of a loss in Virginia and a near governor's loss in New Jersey to wake them up to this? I, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, you know, I but you have a feel for the cloakroom. You, you know how the conversations were before those two election results and how they turned after. You've got a feel for that, right? I mean, at some point in time, I mean, we had to do the infrastructure bill eventually. So, you know, I don't I don't know if the election was actually the sort of turning point wake up call that um, I I think it was to some degree. But I don't know if that's what actually finally got us to the point of bringing forth a good, good bill that had already passed. Thirteen House House Republicans voted for it when it came to the floor. If you do you think if it had been brought to the floor earlier? There would have been a higher number of House Republicans voting for it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I know well, who... <laughs> what, I know what, what do you think them. that number might have been? 30, 40? Um, I think at one point in time, estimates were 50 to 60. Now, and here's, here's one thing that I would mention. If it was a good bill in August and September and 50 or 60 Republicans said they were going to vote for it on that at that point in time, then, you know, you can be just as aggravated as I am that we held a good bill. But how do you vote against delivering 
major necessary investments to your communities. I, I do think that that is not a justifiable position that many of them hold. No, but what happened in that intervening set of weeks, of course, is the voice of former President Trump got louder and louder That's about opposing it, opposing it. And that, dro- that drove down the House Republican support. And then you've seen what's happened since. Those who did vote for it are now being treated as some kind of party defectors or apostates or something. Did you ever imagine a scenario in American politics where a voting for an infrastructure bill would be regarded as something akin to an act of anti-patriotism or <laughs> subversion or something? An infrastructure bill that Great Mitch American McConnell job. voted for, Lindsey Graham voted for, it, right? The the kind of stalwarts in the Senate of the Republican Party, not you know not just stalwarts, but in fact leadership voted for it talked about it as for the you know beneficial bill that creates american jobs invests in our own infrastructure i mean when we are talking about and senator the, graham lindsey graham of south carolina the living embodiment of a trump influenced u-turn yeah i mean the things he said about candidate trump in 2015 and 2016 he now runs away from as rapidly as he humanly can and embraces almost everything of the trumpist agenda he voted for it yeah and when you think about the fact that you know, when we're looking about where we are competitively as a nation, um, a country like China is investing in not only its own roads, bridges, infrastructure, uh, but in other people's infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband connectivity, railways, etc. And the fact that we, you know, even when you think back to the fact that the former president used to talk, uh, you know, about how you know, how much our airports need repair mm-hmm. and how bad our Third roads world are. Airports. Third world airports. And in fact, this bill delivers billions of dollars in support to to ensure that we are competitive, not just, you know, the best airports in the world and the largest investment in Amtrak that we've seen since the creation of Amtrak or in railways, but in fact, also recognizing the vulnerabilities that exist in our electrical grid, right? Between what we saw in Texas based on severe weather when mm-hmm. Uh, the electrical grid went down to the cyber hack of Colonial Pipeline. Like, it's very clear some of the vulnerabilities that exist. And the idea that we have the ability to address that, and not to mention broadband connectivity across rural communities like those I represent, bring them into, ensure that they are solidly in the 21st century. Like, I, I don't know how you vote against that. Um, but So... This brings us to our next topic, which is that bill that held the infrastructure bill of all the things you've just so enthusiastically listed is Build Back Better. That's one of its names. Reconciliation is another. It goes by several names, but it's narrowly passed the House. Mm -hmm. It's in the Senate. What do you believe the prospects are for that? And if, in fact, it is legislation that President Biden ultimately signs, do we necessarily put him in the LBJ FDR transformative category, even though you suggested a moment ago that's not exactly why he was elected? Well, so I think the the prospects of this bill, first and foremost, is we passed out of the House a version. A version. A version. And I keep telling my constituents, (laughs) love it or hate it, it's not going to be the final bill. Um, So we passed out of the House a, a version of this bill, passing it over to the Senate. The Senate will make many, many amendments, subtractions and additions. I've been working with um, some Senate counterparts on some border security related provisions that can be added in and voted on. And hopefully those will make it into the bill on the Senate side. Um, The Senate will vote. It'll come back to the House. And from there, we will see what the ultimate package is. Um, You know, and I I think we have a, a 
some of the senators who might want to take things out have been very public and open about what they want to take out. Some of the provisions that are kind of common sense, good additions to the bill, like some of the border security provisions, as an example, those will get added in and it'll come back to the House. Um, You know, and I think among the things that I expect to stay in the bill, there's strong climate provisions focused on really making monumental and important movements in the fight against climate change. The refundable child tax credit, which has been just such an incredible shift in how we utilize the tax credit and and really impactful and beneficial to Probably universal pre-K. And and universal pre-K. I mean, when, you know, one of the first organizations when I first was elected to come and meet with me in my office was this group of veterans uh, focused on our nation's readiness. And one of the things that they really focus on is universal pre-K because a 2015 study showed that 70% of uh, America's students are not eligible to pass the exam to enter the military, either because of a criminal record, because of their physical fitness, or because they can't pass the written exam. And so their point uh, in the advocacy that they do, and there's many, many studies related to this, is that when you invest in early childhood education, you are actually making investments in our national security because we know that a child who receives a strong pre-K education does better in school. And then when that child does better in school, that child kind of puts themselves on a better trajectory and this, whether they join the military or the economy right before ways. we go to break yes or no this bill will pass before christmas and be on the president's desk <laughs> i thought the infrastructure bill was going to pass in august so <laughs> do not listen to my time frame votes i think so but i have been wrong many times before think so that's a hard thing so from Abigail Spanberg. i'm major garrett <laughs> we are at strange ways brewery brewery i'll get it out of my mouth i promise you here in richmond virginia segment three of the takeout coming to your way in just a few seconds Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Richmond, Virginia is our location, Strange Ways Brewery. To be precise, we're in the back by the fermentation tanks and the kegs, which I think you probably recognized over our shoulder. Abigail Spanberger is our special guest, Democratic Congresswoman, 7th District of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we're recording this, folks, on November 23rd, a couple of days before Thanksgiving. Again, happy Thanksgiving to all of you and your families. Hope you had an enjoyable and together experience. We talked about not having that last year. Hope it was better for you this year. So on this day that we are recording this, Congresswoman, President Biden has ordered that 50 million barrels of oil will be taken from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The White House says this is designed to increase domestic supplies and at some point, in the indeterminate future, reduce gas prices. Will this work? Make any sense? Um, support? Oppose? Well, not only do I, I support, but I joined colleagues yesterday uh, calling on the president to do just this. Uh, you know, certainly it, it's important that we take very seriously the real impact on families uh, and, and the impact of, of gas prices being increased as they are. Um, in some places, you know, record 
record gas prices. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot of contributing factors, pent up demand. Uh, certainly gas prices fell to a, a pretty significant low uh, during the early days of the pandemic. Uh, but I, I think this is the right thing to do. And I'm uh, appreciative that the president has finally done it. So uh, you're going to hear this a lot uh, in the campaign season coming. Let me just run through a couple of Republican talking points, not because I endorse them, but because they're going to come your way. And I'd like to hear your responses. First of all, it's all this reckless Democratic spending that's driving up inflation. True or not true? Not true. Why? I mean, even and I'll 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 mention Senator Portman at Rob Portman, Ohio Republican at the White House said that, in fact, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is counterinflationary as it relates to the Build Back Better Act, which hasn't yet passed the House or excuse me, has passed the House, hasn't passed the Senate, will come back to the House, has a bit of a ways to go before its law. Um, You know, that bill in its ultimate form um, is either fully paid for or almost completely paid for. And the investments that we're making there um, are investments in our community, investments in ensuring that people are putting food on the table and we're lowering the cost of prescription drugs. So let me ask you this. Uh, CBS had a poll that came out recently. Uh, no surprise to you or anyone listening, inflation was a top-of-the-mind issue across the country. 67% of that CBS poll disapproved of the president's handling of inflation. Then we asked them questions. Why, why do you think inflation is a problem? 84% said supply issues. Yep. 59% said higher wages being paid, having inflationary Makes sense. 58% said consumer demand and supply problems. 50% said the COVID-19 relief package, meaning the American Rescue Plan. I've talked to lots of people who run small businesses. Whether this is true or not, they have anecdotal, what they believe to be lived experience that says, I can't hire people because they were so generously compensated with unemployment benefits or the like. And when 50% of a nationwide poll tell us they believe that inflation was being driven by the COVID relief package, what do you say to them? I mean, I I would say, well, what part of that package should we have cut? The billions of dollars in support to small businesses throughout central Virginia that received PPP funding, that received idle loans, Uh, the support directly to our schools to allow, as, as they did in the communities that I represent, that allowed the schools to hire additional mental health counselors or school counselors, hire um, uh, folks to help cope with learning loss, put pop-up tents so kids can eat lunch outside and have a bit of a, of a break during the day in fresh air and take their masks off and, as they're eating their lunch safely. Uh, the HVAC systems that ensure that they're circulating clean air through our schools. I mean, these are the things that we did with the American Rescue Plan funding, the broadband connectivity dollars that the communities I represent are now utilizing to actually start broadband uh, installation projects throughout central Virginia. Uh, Does this 50% number tell you that you've got a hill to climb on this issue and in communicating these sorts of things? Because another theme that's coming through in Washington right now is that For whatever reasons, uh, Democrats in charge have been so busy doing things, they have spent very little or almost no time explaining what either has been done or why they're trying to do all these things they've been so busy with. Tell and sell is the sort of cliched... I think that's a perpetual issue with Democrats anyway. We try to solve a problem, you know, work on policy that we believe in, pass it, and it's on to the next thing. I mean, you know, you even look at the infrastructure bill, we... 
hadn't even passed the infrastructure bill, knew we were going to, so everybody's already talking about the next thing. I think that is a challenge. It's when you're focused on actually governing and passing legislation, um, sometimes you get uh, the party may get distracted or members of the Democratic Party may get distracted from actually selling it. But I think a part of the problem is that far too many people, if you look at with the Build Back Better Act, we're always talking in numbers, right? So the idea... As opposed to people. And as opposed to... If I hear policies, you right? The initial discussions about, oh, it'll be, you know, X trillion dollars. Six trillion or, is where we started. Yeah. I, we, I, meaning <laughs> the national debate, six trillion. Not well, me. I would argue it wasn't the national debate. There were a couple people who put that number six trillion out there. Bernie Sanders. And then, and then we had to contend with Senate that. Senate Budget Committee Chairman. Um, and so once that number's floating out there, and then the number uh, 3.75 trillion, right? Well, what do you want to do with $6 trillion? What do you want to do with $3.75 trillion? Like, these are the sorts of discussions when you anchor it in a number. Of course, people are going to say, holy smokes, that's a lot of money. Well, ultimately, that is not the amount of money of this bill. And ultimately, it's nowhere close to what's actually going to go to the president's desk when a bill goes to the president's desk. Um, And so I think, unfortunately, you know, that effort at sort of putting a toehold and a number that, you know, somebody somewhere really kind of wanted to to make that line in the sand has has disrupted the conversation where, you know, even now, like it becomes difficult to bring the conversation back to the programs because there are many, many positive and good ways to invest a lot of money. And there are a lot of not so good ways to do it. Back to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve decision for just one moment. Do you believe and would you be willing to say to your constituents, this will have a measurable, noticeable effect within the next month or two here in the district of the 7th District of Virginia? So I'm going to defer to the the researchers and the economists on this um, who say that, yes, it should have impact. Um, this is why I have advocated for the president to take this action. I hope it will have that impact. Um, I am trying to make an informed decision for the things that I advocate for. And, and ultimately, I hope that that's what we see when it comes to the moment when we are pumping our gas. Um, but I, I endeavor to be very, very truthful and very, very upfront with my constituents. So this is why I have advocated for it, because there are plenty of economists who say this is a positive step that will help lower the cost of, of gas at the pump. Um, but ultimately, after the president's announcement today, we'll we'll have to, um, you know, we'll have to wait a little bit to see how how much that's realized. Again, this is a Republican talking point. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it's coming your way, and it was part of the reaction cauldron, if you will. If the president hadn't had so many environmentally restrictive policies on either fracking or exploration on federal lands or trying to reverse the reopening of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, domestic supplies would be larger, therefore prices would be lower. So it's the president's fault we have higher gas prices. You're going to hear that on the campaign trail. What's your response? I mean, my response is there's no one single factor related to high gas prices. I mean, notably, we had such a decreased demand a year ago. In his remarks, the president said he's blameless on that. Well, you know, I think ultimately he is the president, so I appreciate that he's taking action in releasing the strategic stockpile or at least um, a, a significant portion of it. Um, but, you know, here in Virginia, we were highly impacted by the colonial pipeline hack. Right. So we recognize because we've witnessed it firsthand that there can be major disruptions um, to our energy supply right here in central Virginia. Um, and separate from whatever environmental policy the White House pursues. Separate or in addition to. Right. 
Um, and, you know, even when it comes to trucking shortages and the shortage of truck drivers and supply chain kind of uh, um, uh, chokes along the way, right? The, all of these things contribute. And I think if we say there's one single solitary, if he hadn't done this one thing, everything would be perfectly fine. I think that that's that is not a correct assessment either. Um, so, you know, looking at the, the way that we contend with, you know, the reality of where we are is by looking at all of the potential factors. So, you know, I'm willing, and I think it's appropriate to have the conversation about how any and all of those things, either um, as, a, as a single item or in concert, might have had some impact in, in gas prices increasing. Um, but I think like looking for one boogeyman decision, um, doesn't allow us to then address the issue. And so I think also, if you think you know the cause of everything, then what would one do? Um, and, and so I, I, I think that we have to be focused on actually moving forward. Understanding how we got here is important. But then what's the solution to make gas more affordable for the American people? That is the voice of Abigail Spanberger, Congresswoman, 7th District of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. We're in Richmond, Virginia. Strange Ways Brewery is our host. We're back here in the back with the tanks. We're enjoying it quite a bit. Back for segment four in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Abigail Spanberger is our special guest, Congresswoman, 7th District, Commonwealth of Virginia, Democrat. Was the Afghanistan withdrawal a disaster? A lot of people wrote that, was it? Um, I think it was a disaster. I think it was chaotic. I think it was really, really hard to watch, uh, particularly for anyone who's ever spent time in Afghanistan or spent... Um, years of their lives focused on kind of the future and the possibility that existed in Afghanistan. Um, but I, I think that you can say, yes, it was a bad reality in August, but it wasn't the decisions of just July and June that got us there or the kind of choices that we made in August. It's 20 years worth of decision-making and 20 years worth of choices that led us to or the drift. point. Or drift. And lack of choices. Yeah, or lack of choices. We've I mean, had lengthy conversations on this show. Uh, we had an entire show devoted to the Afghanistan papers. We had an entire show de- devoted to General David Petraeus talking about Afghanistan. We've talked about that subject a great deal on this show, and our audience is well equipped to judge that. Looking back on that month of August, do you rue even more, and do you think Democrats should rue even more that strategic decision not to put the infrastructure bill on the president's desk, might that have not changed at least some of the atmospherics at the time? I mean, I think that for the American people, particularly for veterans, particularly those who were advocating with us and we were working hard to try and get every uh, SIV eligible person out of Afghanistan, vulnerable people out of Afghanistan, like that was always going to continue to be a focal point for many, many Americans. Um, But the idea that we could also then simultaneously as a as a country celebrated the investments that we were making in our own future. I I do think that there would have been a a real um, 
uh, a real change in the discussion. We could have had the the discussion of all of the things that were happening in Afghanistan that were deeply troubling, deeply upsetting, kind of the loss of 20 years worth of work and headway, um, but also concurrently as Americans recognize that we were you know, making strong investments in our roads, bridges, infrastructure. Um, and and, and I, I think that having the anchor of investment that we were making in our own country kind of occurring at what was otherwise a very, very difficult time um, would have been um, important. And then even just from a time frame, the faster we passed that bill and got it signed by the president, uh, the faster we could start seeing those, uh, you know, planning for, for those projects to begin. This raises a larger structural question, which is uh, the White House was not exactly a bystander to this whole idea of merging these two bills together, having one dependent on the other and the legislative limbo. It signed off on all of that. Does that in any way raise questions in your mind about the political effectiveness or acuity of this White House? I have spent some time thinking about this general premise of how did these two bills even get linked? And I think if you if you look back, as, as I remember it... And even if the White House didn't link them, the White <laughs> yeah. House was in position. Every president is in position yeah. to de-link things if his party is the one linking them. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that completely. The president had every opportunity to say no, pull them apart, pass them separately and get one to my desk as soon as possible. Well, because they're they're two different. You know, the president put forth the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan and elements of, you know, the American Families Plan. Like that is really what has become the the most of the Build Back Better Act and the American Jobs Plan. That is a lot of what became the bipartisan infrastructure and investment uh, and jobs act. And so. They were always, I mean, they're, they're two separate proposals, even, that go hand in hand. They might have benefits. They might be complementary. Um, but they're two separate things. And I, I think that when we started going down this path of calling, uh, you know, uh, child care and the child tax credit human infrastructure, I mean, we just went in a place that, to me, didn't really make sense and required a lot more explaining. And your constituents don't understand. Well, I, and no offense to them, but I don't understand. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. So does that raise questions about how effective and useful this White House is to you or other Democrats who are going to be, as you said, in your own words, slogging through a tough reelection? Do you, you, know, do you want this White House's help? Do you want the president's help? I mean, I, I think that ultimately it's more it's even a question of any person who thought, let's let's take two independent bills that have lots of good in them. You know, fighting climate change, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, continuing the refundability of the child tax credit, investing in schools, blah, 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 all these wonderful things like over here. And then we got roads, bridges, Internet, um, replacing every lead pipe in America, uh, water systems, sewer systems. Let's just push them all together so it's an even bigger sort of mental monstrosity to consider. Like anyone who thought that was a good idea, I just fundamentally don't understand that, right? Packages, large packages, where you're dealing with so many different issues in one bill are already complicated, already sort of make it difficult for people to pull away and digest all of the things that would be important. And so the idea that people would actually take two separate bills that would have two separate votes, pass through the House and the Senate separately, and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just lump them together in an even bigger stew of confusing policy, uh, because surely that's a good idea. Like, I don't, anyone who thought that was a good idea, I, I just really <laughs> find it a conundrum. Opposed to mental monstrosities. I think everyone in our audience would agree with that. Uh, Congressman, I want to ask you in our last two minutes of this segment, 
Early on in the Biden administration, when he, the president, was getting very solid, favorable ratings across the board, there was one issue early on, even among independents, where the president was a little bit underwater. That was immigration. It has now become consistently underwater. Yeah. And in our most recent poll, even 20% of Democrats, 26% said the president's not tough enough on immigration. And 61% of self-identified independents said the president is not tough enough on immigration. Does this White House have a blind spot about what's happening at the border and the political implications thereof? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know how I would classify it. But should we be taking action to ensure that every individual who's working at the border has the technology, the resources that they need? Absolutely. Um, we have border security agents who are um, working so hard and, and, you know, contending with people who are trying to cross the border is one portion of it. But doing interdictions is another portion of it. And, you I mean, know, in your own district, immigration has cast a shadow. Eric Cantor lost his battle in part in a Republican primary over the immigration issue, wasn't tough enough on it. So your constituents at least have a history. I don't know what it is right now, this moment, but have a history of identifying this issue as important. Well, and I think this goes back to a a certain level of how how thoughtful, how pragmatic, and frankly, how intentional are we being about addressing the problems that are facing our nation, right? We have a a crisis at the border that we have to contend with. We have people who are crossing the border and we... need greater technology. We need greater investments of people and of resources and immigration judges. A wall? Um, <laughs> a physical wall is... No. Um, Just asking. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, but technology to help monitor the border? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I passed a, a bill last Congress with Will Hurd, Republican member from Texas, Former President Trump signed the legislation into law um, to not only, um, you know, focus on addressing the challenges at the border by looking at what are the root causes? What are the transnational uh, drug cartels? What are the human trafficking organizations that are contributing to the instability and frankly contributing to the movement of people and things across the border? But it, it isn't just the immigration aspect. It's actually, you know, drug trafficking across the border. It's the fact that interdictions happen every single day. And those who are working at the border conducting interdictions like need additional resources. Um, so we have to be ag- like aggressive in our vocalization of, yes, there are real challenges. And these are the policy priorities that you know, we in Congress are pursuing. And that's DREAM, uh, you know, the Farm Workforce Modernization, the DREAM and Promise Act, plus additional funding for uh, those who work on the border. And the administration needs to be clear-eyed in the challenges that our personnel face. Clear-eyed indeed. That is the voice of Abigail Spanberger, our special guest, Congresswoman, 7th District of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm Major Garrett. For our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. For those on CBSN and our early adopters on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the takeout Outtake Especial. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. You know who I am, Major Garrett. Strange Ways Brewery is our host here in Richmond, Virginia. We're in Richmond because it is represented in the United States House of Representatives by none other than Abigail Spanberger. So it's great to see you here for the Especial. You just told me seconds ago <laughs> you have a funny story about President Biden. I want to hear it, and so does everyone out there. <laughs> So after my comments, which you mentioned earlier in the FDR, show. FDR. No one elected him to be FDR. Um, I was on the floor uh, voting, and someone came out, and they said, oh, you know, Representative Stanberger, you have a phone call. And so I go into the cloakroom, and I have never been summoned to the cloakroom for a call because, of course, you know, in the ages of cell phones. Um, but evidently, I also had missed calls on my cell phone that I wasn't answering from an unknown 202 number. So I go into the cloakroom, and they say, um, the president and the White House are trying to get a hold of you. And I thought they were kidding. They were not kidding. So I go into one of the little phone booths and I close the door and I pick up the phone and this woman says, Representative Spanberger, are you available to speak with the president? And I said, uh, yes. And then I hear this woman say, Mr. President, Representative Spanberger is on the line. And then I hear a voice say, hello, Abigail, it's President Roosevelt. And I wanted to curl under the table and I said, Hello, Mr. President. And he starts laughing and says, oh, I'm glad you have a good sense of humor, Abigail. To which I could barely contain myself and said, I'm glad you have a good sense of humor, Mr. President. Um, And then we both had a good laugh and proceeded to continue the conversation. But um... (laughs) pro tip, when you get a cell call in the District of Columbia or the surrounding areas and it comes up 202 unknown... There's a relatively good chance that's coming from the big house that is white. Uh, I just know that from personal experience. Now you know that as well. Um, So that's a great story. That's a really, really good story. That's why you come here for the Especial, because we don't always have stories that good. That might be the best Especial story we've ever, ever had. So thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. Um, You've listened to the show before, so you know what's coming, the three threshold questions. We ask each and every one of our guests. Our audience loves the answers, so take these in whatever order you wish to take them. Most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie, or one of your favorite movies, and if you're driving in the beautiful 7th District of the Commonwealth of Virginia, or a long flight or a long drive, and you're really going to dig your music, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? (laughs) Okay. Reggaeton music. Mm -hmm. Spy Game. Spy Game, okay. And then for books, there's a couple. So Secret Garden, when I was a little girl, Les Miserables, uh, when I was a bit older, um, and in the Garden of Beasts. Tell us a little bit about those three books and why they were important to you. So The Secret Garden was a book about this um, this young girl who um, explores uh, this house where she's gone to live after her parents die um, on the moors of England, and she finds this hidden garden, and she kind of brings it back to life. And so I loved it because she was a bit mischievous, at times had a bit of a bad attitude. Um, but she um, created this space in this garden and created this beautiful um, secret place uh, that was hers and, and that for a, a place where she and her friends would go play. And I thought it was a really cool story. Um, Lame is a Rob because I loved the uh, the musical mm-hmm. uh, and always loved the music as a kid. Um, and so then when I got older, I, I read the book um, 
and just found it fascinating. It's this, a sweeping adventure story. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's history, it's redemption, it's, it's everything. Um, and then uh, In the Garden of Beasts, I think, is a, an example of a story that I just found captivating because it's, you know, when you have the, like, when hindsight is twenty twenty about what's occurring in history, to, to read about uh, the story of this ambassador um, in Germany in the years leading up to and then ultimately the rise of Hitler, you know, the circumstances that really allowed us to, as a, as a, as a government, as a country, to miss some of the warning signs, I, I found it to be just a really fascinating uh, story. Excellent. Thank you for those. Those are all great, great answers. I want to go back to the uh, President Biden story for just a second. What does that tell you about that call? What did you learn about him that you possibly didn't know before that call? <laughs> he has a very good sense of humor. And doesn't hold a grudge. Yeah. Right? Those, in my experience covering politics, legislative, presidential, and the like, those are two things that really matter across political ideologies and parties. Don't hold grudges. Have a sense of humor. Well, especially about yourself. And arguably, I would say it's quite a positive thing to say this is the man who was elected to bring normalcy and to end the chaos. Uh, so certainly, you know, my, my comments were saying the focal point of what people expect, right? Like that's a lot to end the chaos after a global pandemic and, uh, you know, for many years of a, of a president where you woke up every day afraid to read Twitter or the news. Um, so, you know, certainly high expectations of him. But in a different space, in that sort of space of empathy and emotion and leadership that I think, um, you know, he's particularly known for. Congressman Spanberger, it's been a great pleasure to hang out with you. I'm not President Roosevelt, but (laughs) I hope you will forgive me for that. Thanks for being here on The Takeout. It's been a pleasure. That's The uh, Takeout Outtake Especial. Everyone, we'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.